Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While some urgent evacuations continue today in Kabul after the two suicide bombings killed more than 100 people yesterday, what happened? What do we know so far about ISIS-K, the group behind these deadly bombings? We'll delve into that. Ministry of Environment has approved the city of Hamilton's work plan for remediation of Coots Paradise. Now, this follows the massive sewage spill at the Shadow Creek over four and a half years ago. Andrew Grice is the director of water, and Councilor Maureen Wilson, of course, the councilor for that area of town. They both join us to talk about that. And public health units across Ontario continue to call for a province-wide COVID-19 vaccine certification system. Why does Doug Ford continue to ignore those, please? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to begin the program today uh, talking about the uh, the terrible incident yesterday. Uh, the number is now over 100 dead, including a number of American service people that were killed. Uh, some of the countries are ending the evacuation flights from Afghanistan. Uh, there were still some there because of the terrorist attack yesterday, but the United States is vowing to continue at least until the end of the month. Jackie Quinn has details. President Biden vowed the mission to remove U.S. citizens and some Afghans who helped the U.S. government will go on. Despite suicide bombings near the airport that killed U.S. service personnel and dozens of Afghan citizens. Any American who wishes to get out of Afghanistan, we will find them and we will get them out. Biden says the violence appears to be the work of a faction of the Islamic State group. We will hunt you down. And make you pay. Canada and a number of European countries have already ended their evacuations. Jackie Quinn, Washington. Well, what happened yesterday? Why did it happen? Who are these people? And uh, what's going to happen going forward? Lots of questions. I'll try to get some answers uh, from our first guest. Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program, a former analyst with CSIS, and author, too. His latest book, uh, The Peaceable Kingdom, is a must-read uh, to get a handle on what's going on with terrorism uh, globally these days. Uh, Phil, great to have you back in the program under very uh, trying circumstances. Thanks for joining us today. Well, my pleasure, Bill. Yeah, this is a is a horrendous attack, and uh, you know, hundred dead or wounded. It's uh, it's hard to fathom sometimes, Bill. Who are these people? Uh, ISIS K, uh, and and I've seen a lot of the stuff as you, I'm sure you have on social media over the last little while, saying Taliban, this Taliban, that. Uh, some of the sources I've tapped into over the last little while, Phil, are saying this is not the Taliban. This is anti-Taliban. Is is that true? Well, yes and no, Bill. So. To your first question, so Islamic State in Khorasan is a so-called Islamic State province or affiliate. And we know that Islamic State, which of course rose to power in Iraq and Syria in 2014, a self-declared caliphate, you know, they became kind of the, um, the top dog in the terrorist world. And a lot of people wanted to emulate them in the same way that we used to have Al-Qaeda provinces. Remember, remember Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Well, ISIS became kind of the, the person you wanted to be like, and so dozens of affiliates and provinces opened up around the world, and the one in, in Afghanistan is called Islamic State Khorasan, and it was more or less sort of centered in the eastern province of Nangahar, which abuts the Chinese border, a lot smaller than the Taliban. Um, they weren't necessarily allies, but let's face it, Bill, these guys are cut from the same cloth. Uh, yeah, because we're hearing that uh, they, I, 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 again, I'm trying to just extrapolate some of the comments I've heard from just watching about 25 different news services yesterday. Uh, and and uh, they seem to be indicating that, uh, that ISIS-K here, I uh, think that the, shall we say, mainstream Taliban is, is, is not uh, radical enough for them. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I would agree with that. If you remember, in fact, Bill, when, when, the, when the ISIS took over and started doing some really heinous things like burning people alive, uh, drawing them in cages, uh, throwing gay people off buildings, of course, raping the Yazidis. Even Al-Qaeda said, you guys have gone too far. You're a little little too brutal for our liking. That was Ayman al-Zawahiri, who took over from bin Laden when he was killed in 2011. So, yeah, the ISIS tends to be a little more violent than the Al-Qaeda and Taliban type. So it's not surprising that they would, they would see the Taliban and what they're doing as not being heinous enough, not being cruel enough, because their pattern is to be as cruel as possible. It's uh, the dynamic in the country here is, is, I guess, troublesome to an awful lot of people as to what's going to happen here. Uh, I know that uh, I was watching one of the Pentagon. This was about a week or so ago as the airlift was starting. And they're saying, look, we only went into Afghanistan 20 years ago for two things, to get bin Laden and to crush ISIS. And we've done both. Well, apparently they didn't crush ISIS. They just drove them underground. Yeah, well, if you remember, Bill, uh, former President Trump said back in 2019 when the so-called caliphate was more or less eliminated, 
that ISIS had been totally defeated, and yet I follow the news like you on a daily basis, and Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria carries out daily attacks against the Kurds, against the Syrians. As I mentioned, we have an affiliate in Mozambique now that was beheading people until the Rwandans and the African Union moved in. So, no, these guys weren't crushed. Um, at the same time, I understand the mentality behind the U.S. pull-up. It has been two decades, and we know that occupying a country is rarely a good idea. In history, it has rarely worked out well. But to say that you've defeated these terrorist groups is unfortunately, that's for public fodder. That's to tell your population all's well. But the bottom line, Bill, is that these terrorist groups are rarely, rarely fully defeated. There's always either hangers-on or they reconstitute themselves once the pressure's taken off. Well, and, and to try to discredit something Donald Trump said is really kind of picking the low-hanging fruit. It's not that difficult. <laughs> but because you, And to your point, I mean, the, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a U.S. foreign policy think tank, uh, they figured that between 2015 and 2017, which is right around the time Trump was referring, ISIS-K had launched nearly 100 terrorist attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan alone. Uh, so they were active. They, they've just been under the radar, but not to the people in Afghanistan, I guess. Yeah, very much so. And as I said earlier, you know, I follow the news on a daily basis. I, I read hundreds of news sites every day. And if you look at the Afghan sources, so Afghan media, they were reporting these attacks. They didn't quite make our radar, you know, the BBC, CBC, you know, New York Times kind of thing. But if you really tried to get out, inf- get to the information from the real localized sources, you would have realized that these attacks were, as you said, very, very frequent in nature. But because they are a smaller group focusing largely in the eastern part of the country, I think they kind of played second fiddle to the Taliban because the Taliban was equally as active. Like I said, if all the news sources, the Taliban have been carrying out daily attacks for years now. And it's just a matter of, it all kind of gets lost in the jumble, I guess. It's almost like there's too much information, too much violence that we kind of say, okay, we've read enough now, let's just you know watch uh, cartoons or something because my brain is full. While I've got you, I've got to ask you about something else that's been bothering me, and, and it's going back to some of the, the, the reports about how this, uh, this extraction of the, all these people that want to get out of Afghanistan was, was going to happen. Uh, and I think there's a general consensus now. They waited way too long. They should have started this years ago when they first started promising interpreters and others that they were going to try to get them out of there because they knew there was going to be an end date to this. But that aside, when they decided on this protocol, whether it was at the Pentagon or the State Department, probably both, I guess, uh, Phil, uh, they seem to be uh, under the idea that, look, at, uh, once we leave on, on, on August 31st, uh, it's going to be months before the Taliban actually you know, has enough power and strength to be able to move toward this, and that's going to be more than enough time to, for, to, for transition. Uh, they were there before they even left. I mean, that, to me, that sounds like a, a, a terrible, terrible screw-up in, in intelligence. I mean, they did not get the right information, or they ignored it, one or the other. Yeah, <laughs> As you can imagine, Bill, I, I get really sensitive about failures in intelligence, but you're absolutely right. I did see the same predictions that you had said, six months minimum. And yet, you know, I had a little thing in the back of my mind saying, I don't think it's going to be six months, because again, if you follow what the Taliban have been doing successfully for years before that, they were creeping along quite steadily in many parts of Afghanistan, up to and including the, 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 the departure date. So somebody told me this wasn't going to take six months. So whether it was an intelligence failure or I would put it more, Bill, that they decided to get out and they were going to make the situation as rosy as they could to say, okay, everything's good, we can get out, and by the way, you'll all be safe. So it's hard for me to say without access to intelligence whether the intelligence community dropped the ball or whether, and I've seen this in the past, you certainly saw it with the decision to invade Iraq 2003, they cherry-picked the intelligence to justify their move. So I don't want to get cynical on you all here, Bill. But, you know, politicians do things for certain reasons, and it's hard to determine exactly what was the undermining truth there. Well, that's a good comparison, too. I, I read Bob Woodward's book, too, Plan of Attack, that talked about uh, that 2003 decision, such as it was. And uh, and you're right, they cherry-picked stuff that, that, that would substantiate what they wanted to do. And I don't know if that's happening here or not. But it just seems odd, because the justification when they made that statement was, look, they haven't even t- taken any of the provincial capitals yet. So how could they possibly take a run of capital? Within a week, they'd taken about 10 of them. Uh, it sounds like they were just waiting for the announcement and said, okay, now let's, it's the big push. And, and, you know, it wasn't six months. It was about six days later that they were challenging the cap. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, it, it was incredible to see the rapidity with which the Taliban moved across the country. But again, going to what I said earlier, if you follow the actual attacks they were carrying out, they may have not have been taking provincial capitals, but they were engaging with the Afghan army on a daily basis in basically all four corners of the country. If you know, so if you extrapolate from what they were doing, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to say, hey, these guys are pretty good. 
and they've been pretty successful so far, we should maybe give them a little more credit than we're giving them, and, and maybe they'll, they'll move much more quickly than we think they will. You know, these things are hard to predict, though, at the best of times. But, you know, it boils down to you got to keep up on the information. you got to make yourself aware. And you got to, when you do your analysis, you got to be as true to the facts as possible and try to eliminate any kind of biases. And, again, I've been out of the business for six and a half years now, Bill, but just reading open source, which is all I have access to now, this was being, I was, this is a scary picture that was being painted, and it didn't look good for the Afghan people. So if I could figure that out as an old guy sitting here just outside of Ottawa, ex-intelligence, my question is, why couldn't the folks at the CIA and all the other agencies figure out the same thing? That's the million-dollar question right now and that I haven't heard an answer to as of yet. So what happens going forward? I mean, you know, the Taliban are looking for legitimacy now. Uh, there's some speculation, you know, that they may try to reach out to, you know, they, they, want, they want the American embassy back, or so they're saying anyway. Uh, mind you, a couple of weeks ago they said that they were going to, you know, respect everybody and there'd be amnesty against anybody that helped the Allies. Well, then we found out they're going door-to-door -door trying to find these people. So I don't think it was to shake their hand and thank them for it. So you don't know what's really going to happen here. But... Uh, from a from a, a security standpoint right now, uh, where do we go with this, and and how do we deal with what's going on there? Because uh, one of the other stories that I'm hearing, I, I wanted to get your read on it too, Phil, is that this is going to embolden uh, not just what the, what's going on here with ISIS-K, but uh, the, the terrorist cells that are really located all over the world these days. They may just think, you know what, this is the time to, to act now. Yeah, let me start with the second one, Phil, because I, sure. I agree with that, that analysis. And I, I'll draw an analogy here for you. When, when Al-Qaeda and the, and the ragtag bunch of Afghans defeated the, the great Soviet army, remember that back in the 1980s? Oh, yeah. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. That was kind of like a high-five moment. Like, we defeated the second or first greatest army on the planet Earth with a bunch of Lee-Enfield rifles and, you know, and, and, yeah, and some stuff that the Americans had given us. They will go forward. A lot of groups will see this as a massive victory. Of course, the United States is the only re real remaining superpower right now in terms of defense and intelligence. And the fact the Americans have... They can be portrayed as going home with their tail between their legs, and they will see this as, you know, the great the Taliban and their allies defeated the greatest army on earth. I would be very surprised if a lot of groups um, do not see Afghanistan as a new haven in the same way that we saw when ISIS declared the caliphate in 2014. A bunch of people, upwards of four or 5,000 so-called foreign fighters, including 200 Canadians, decided to go join the caliphate because mm -hmm. this is a new now. So I would be very surprised if... If, if groups didn't see that, there are there are already dozens of groups in Afghanistan. Bill, it's not just the Taliban. There's Islamic uh, the um, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. There's the ETIM. There's all kinds of groups that are fighting in Afghanistan. I think it's going to get worse. The big question becomes: Does the Taliban try to keep a bit of a hold on people so that you don't get another 9/11 like event, which will reinvite more military intervention in Afghanistan? That that I can't predict, but. This is certainly a high-water moment for jihadi groups around the world. Well, and that's the concern. I mean, it, it, I'm wondering now if some of these training facilities that we've heard about, uh, you know, it's going to be an industry now. I mean, because that, that's basically what the Taliban was was, was preaching for the longest time. Uh, I know they're trying to put on a face right now that, uh, that no, we're different. We're Taliban light now. I'm, I'm being facetious here, I understand. But, yeah. uh, but you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, you know, are we really supposed to believe what they're saying now? Well, if I was a betting man, Bill, which I'm not, I wouldn't put any money on the Taliban. I wouldn't trust them as far as I can throw them, which isn't very far. They're, they're engaged in propaganda, right? Now, let's face it. They want to put a, you know, a nicer, kinder Taliban 2.0 face uh, towards the world. They're still anti-Diluvian uh, Islamist fundamentalists. They're still, they're still misogynist. They still hate women and girls. They still hate the Shia. They still hate anybody who's not like them. Let's not buy this line that somehow they've, you know, they've seen the light and they're going to be a different group. Again, how brutal they're going to become, it remains to be seen. But I, I, I'm the kind of guy, Bill, that goes with, let's, let's start with the worst possible scenario. And if it's not that bad, then, you know, I'll go to bed a little more easily tonight. But prepare, for, you know, prepare for the worst, because I don't think there's anything that I've seen that suggests the Taliban have changed their, their suit. Again, whether they're going to allow training camps, that's a great question. I'm thinking the answer is probably. Uh, whether we'll get training on the level that we saw leading up to 9-11, hard to say, but certainly possible but um you know going through with the sunny ways and with uh you know glass colored uh whatever rose colored spectacles going forward would be a bad strategy in my mind 
What's going on with the uh, the five eyes right now, the security and intelligence agencies of which Canada is a part? Uh, are, is, are they on high alert right now? Is there an anticipation that they better be, you know, have eyes wide open? Uh, they always do, I get that, but this, this seems to me to be a rather tenuous situation. Oh, it is. Now, the problem is, of course, you know, once you remove that many forces from Afghanistan, you do lose at least some of your intelligence gathering, i.e. your human sources. Sure. It's uh, much easier to run them in country than to run them outside of country. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of the imagery, the, the spy satellites are focused on Afghanistan right now. Um, you know, I worked for CSE before I worked for CSIS, so I guess all the SIGINT, the signals intelligence systems are running 100% on Afghanistan right now. There'll be a lot of cl- a collaboration and cooperation amongst the Five Eyes. And I'd also just point out too, Bill, you know, it's not just the Five Eyes. There are a lot of European partners with whom we worked in Afghanistan under, you know, um, S-4 and all the other NATO deployments. Yeah. Their intelligence services as well will be, will be helping us. And they, they, can, they have assets as well. Maybe not the satellites the Americans have, but they do have their own human source networks and things. I'm guessing that it's, it's all hands on deck right now for Afghanistan and, and will be for the foreseeable future until we determine just how bad the situation is, which raises a really interesting tangential point, Phil. You know, a lot of people talk about the far right, the far right, the far right. Now we've got the Taliban, ISIS, and some other groups on, on the rise. Where do, we, where do we get the resources to adequately monitor all this stuff simultaneously? How many Canadians are going to be impressed with what happened in Afghanistan and think, hey, I want to go back to Afghanistan and become part of this new movement? So do we look at a, a whole new generation of foreign fighters? But I, you know, but just before I left thesis, we were looking at hundreds of Canadians that joined ISIS. Canadians have joined Al-Shabaab in the past. They joined Al-Qaeda in the past. Are we going to see a new wave of Canadians doing that, which puts pressure on thesis and the RCMP to do the investigations to prevent these people from leaving the country to commit acts of terrorism? Um, I'm kind of glad I'm retired right now, Bill, because I yeah. <laughs> if I were. Well, I know, because I was I, thinking along those lines. I know we're out of time here. But the, the, the other element to that, too, is, is, is how many one-offs are there going to be, too? Like, you know, the guy in Strathroy a couple of years ago and things like that exactly. that just uh, feel emboldened by this. And they may be acting alone, but nonetheless, it's, 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 it's pretty scary. Uh, lots more to come. It's a very fluid situation, as always. Phil, thank you for the time. Great to have you back in the program. Uh, stay well, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure, Bill. You have a good weekend. You too. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consult, of course, former member of CSIS. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Water quality, especially in this fabulous area of southern Ontario, has always been a major concern. And, and just to set the scene here, I mean, you know, municipalities, including Hamilton uh, and Burlington and others as partnerships, have done an incredible job over the last uh, 25, 30 years uh, to try to clean up some of our natural areas, which is why the uh, what many people are calling sewage gate uh, was such a tragic circumstance. And uh, they've been working with the ministry, the city has, as a matter of fact, uh, to try to re- get some, some action on this and develop a plan, which has now been given the thumbs up. And I want to talk uh, in just a couple of seconds about that. Andrew Grice is the director of uh, Hamilton Water for the city of Hamilton. And joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Edward, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you very much, Bill. Happy to be listen, here. Listen, before I do, I, we delve into Coots and what you guys are going to do here, there, there is a story that we're, I know that's been making the rounds over the last couple of days, and it's, it's just down the, the waterways a little bit about the blue-green algae uh, that you found around the harbor, and the city's acting on that. Maybe you could give us an update on what's going on there. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So we did see some uh, some comments come in uh, through social media and through calls into the city of Hamilton, uh, seeing an abundance of algae. And really, we're at that stage of the uh, season where that algae is starting to get old and it's often dying off. And that can there, really that, this up. pretty much happens almost every August, doesn't it? Depending on how hot it gets. <laughs> It certainly does. It certainly uh, contributed to the heat as well as the water conditions that we're seeing out there right now. So it's certainly not uncommon. But, uh, you know, in that area of the city, it's, uh, it's it's very active. There's a lot of people in and about walking around and using the facilities down there. So uh, the city's trying to be proactive to get in there and remove that so everyone can enjoy the waterfront. So you're going to remove that? It's going to be taken over, I guess, uh, my understanding is to the to the Woodward Avenue waste plant. Uh, so it'll be dealt with there. And Because uh, I, I know I've, I've received a couple of emails on that too, but some gooey stuff that was actually floating in the water. It, it was pretty extreme this year, wasn't it? It certainly was extreme. And I think the uh, you know we had a very unique year. We had it pretty wet and early in the spring, and then it was very dry. And this heavy heat that we've experienced the last couple of weeks is really the conditions that that type of algae thrives in. So yes, you're right. It is being removed. It's taken to our Woodward facility where it can be fully treated. Um, so hopefully we'll see some improvements there at the waterfront. Uh, the work is progressing, but I would say we're still going to be out there doing this work for another few days. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you for the update on that. Okay, let's switch back to Coots Paradise, because this has been a, a major concern for an awful lot of people. As we mentioned, it's, it's I think, one of the jewels of our area 
area, beautiful natural area, Coots Paradise. Uh, for people that don't know the area, it's, the, it's the, just to the right of the 403 there as you're coming into Hamilton. Uh, and it's it's gorgeous, and it was problematic, of course, because we saw the sewage flow that was going. So you've been working with the ministry uh, for the last little while, Andrew. And, and my understanding is that they, they've given the thumbs up to this plan. What's going to be happening now? Yeah, it is, it's exciting times. I think we're, uh, you know, not trying to diminish the uh, the negative impact that was caused and the, and the pain that's felt by by everybody in the city. But I think we're starting to move towards the future now, which is very exciting from my perspective. So yes, we've got the ministry approval to move forward with our dredge plan. So that is uh, beginning works here and the next steps. And then just recently, what you saw in the media release was the approval of the plan for offsetting in Coots Paradise, and uh, that is where we're going to see some some pretty significant improvements that aren't just going to you know, uh, mitigate the spill, but also will have long-term benefits to the watershed there. So that's something that we're certainly very excited to get moving on. Now, how do you start a program? This is a monumental task. Where do you begin? It is a significant undertaking, and that's uh, one of the challenges is we, we need to show some patience here. So some of these ideas that we're talking about are subject to full environmental assessments to make sure that they're not impacting any social, environmental, and that they are the most economical solution. So we are getting ready to initiate some studies, um, and the outcomes of some of those studies will be implemented in the coming years. And, you know, they could range from you know, maybe smaller scale wetland installations up to uh, larger scale aeration systems to improve dissolved oxygen in the water course. So there's really a wide range of things that can be done. But like I said, one of the, the big benefits we're going to see here is a number of these solutions will, uh, you know, as long as left in place, will have continued benefits for this water course. And, and uh, your point's well taken here. This is a very sensitive area, especially environmentally sensitive. Uh, and I, I guess some of the stuff that you may want to undertake here to try to solve some of these problems and to remediate, uh, you've got to be careful about any damaging any ecosystems that are currently there or having an adverse effect on that. So you're, you're treading lightly here, aren't you? We are, and I mean, if you look at the, so the order was split up into two components. We're calling it the Shadow Creek dredge component and then the work within Coots Paradise. Uh, specifically within the dredge work, uh, you know, there is a number of permits and consultation that is required because there are a number of uh, species at risk that live within this water course, and we need to make sure that whatever we are doing is not impacting their habitat and detrimental to their health. So uh, that's why I say we need to show some patience as we're moving as quickly as we can, but there are a number of studies and permits that are required before we can actually go in there and complete this work well let me ask you about time frame because that was a, a contentious point and and my understanding from what i've read about this so far andrew and is uh, the, the ministry said yeah we like the plan uh but they're not crazy about the time frame they've kind of given you a deadline as to when they want this done and and i know that there's some folks in your department and, and uh, certainly some counselors that are saying it's just not feasible within that time frame you want to get it done we have to do it right and it's going to have to take time how do what, what are your thoughts on that uh, so the timeline certainly is aggressive, but the ministry has been a, a very great partner in this. So, I mean, they, they have a role to play, and I know they're holding our feet to the fire, but they really are being partners in this endeavor. So the the order required the work to be completed, the dredging work to be completed by this October, uh, but the pr a plan that was approved by them shows that work not commencing until next year. I think we all underestimated the number of permit and species at risk work that, may need to, that would need to be done to facilitate this. Uh, so we're working with them on the extension right now, but really we're not looking to mobilize contracts until next year at this point there's there's also a limited time frame on which you can complete work in water uh, but really as soon as we get in there we'll be moving as quickly as we can to uh, to, fil to facilitate all of this work oh yeah we do get winter here don't we yeah that's going to be a factor but that, that's why I was surprised by the, the initial reaction from the, the ministry in this situation though Andrew because they uh, you've got homework to do here and you can't just like I say move the equipment in there and start dredging right off the bat without uh, at least you know it, it doing some sort of research as to the impact it's going to have on the ecosystems that are already there. Uh, so I, I, I think you guys are on side with this, with the proper time frame here. Uh, and and you, the message that you sent, and I guess from what I understand from some of your the council colleagues, uh, is you sent this into city council as well, is, and you just used the word a minute ago, this is take this is going to take patience because this has, this has to be done right and it's going to take some time. This is not something we're going to look at in two years and say, oh, we're done, it's all done. Yeah, it is. And I mean, we're, we're trying to do what we can to accelerate uh, programs uh, where feasible. So we do have some short-term initiatives that we're working on now. And then in, in the background for the dredge work, uh, while we're waiting for permits and these studies to go on, we're actually pre-qualifying contractors so that when we do get the green light and have all the paperwork in place, you know, we can mobilize and, and move as quickly as we can. So, you know, we do need to be patient, but there are things that the city can do to uh, to accelerate that timeline and make sure we're, we're moving as quickly as we can. So that uh, that is really the approach 
approach that we're taking uh, with the ministry and, and with our, our stakeholders. I think we're, we're all on the same page here. And it's one of those that, uh, you know, if you move alone, you can go fast, but if you, you go together, you can go far. And I think that's the approach we're trying to take here. Let's talk about some of those partners. Uh, I know the city of Burlington was part of the, the remediation program. They've made a contribution to that halt, and I guess more specifically. Uh, and, of course, the Royal Botanical Gardens, the RBG, which who actually own the marsh and, and, and manage it. Uh, are they at the table? Are they part of this process? Uh, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned a few of our stakeholders there, but additionally, we've got the uh, the Conservation Authority is a big sure. partner in this. Um, so the work that was submitted uh, and approved by the Ministry for the Work Plan in Coots Paradise actually stemmed from a water quality framework study that we did. And the real focus of that was engaging with our stakeholders. So Botanical Gardens, the uh, other local industries such as Barrier Restoration Council, Environment Hamilton, they were all around the table to, you know, lob ideas out there, have them evaluated by the group, and then determine together what makes the most sense for this ecosystem. So, uh, yes, this really is uh, truly a partnership. I mean, the city the city owns the, uh, uh, the spill, and we need to make it right, but we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that satisfies everybody's needs. This, uh, something I wanted to bring up here, because and it ties into actually both things we're talking about here, both the algae situation, but also uh, what's going on with the remediation here, uh, and that's overflow, which is a problem, and, and we know that's happening with more frequency now because of some of the severe storms uh, that we're having now, and, and you know they used to call them 100-year storms. They happen about four times a summer now, uh, and that's that's causing a, 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 a great stress on your system. I get that, but one of the things that it was actually instituted some time ago was that houses, residential houses, were supposed to to disconnect themselves and their, their their drainage pipes, you know, the yeast troughs, etc., because that used to flow right into the system, which taxed the system. Uh, it seems as if the overflow is still there. And, and are are people in compliance with this, or is that still a problem for you? Uh, so that is something they're working on, and I, I know typically when I call into your show, it is to talk about uh, you know wet weather events and impacts that we've had. Yeah. And last night was a good example. We had a pretty big yeah. storm move through the city last night that did cause some challenges to our infrastructure. Uh, we are continuing to work with residents on disconnecting downspouts, but we're also doing a bunch of other work within uh, within the watershed to try and minimize uh, overflows to the natural environment. We do have a old combined sewer system, which does present many challenges during wet weather events. And as we try to intensify the city and you know we add we add more concrete to our landscape uh, that just uh, increases the challenges that face us so we need to get creative with uh, with better on-site storage and enforcement of that and that's the type of work that our watershed team is undertaking right now well if people that are concerned about that that's the one thing you can do is disconnect the drainage pipes and, and just that really is no hanging fruit for us that's a uh, that is a, a relatively simple exercise the city actually has uh, has a program as part of our protective plumbing program uh, so people are eligible for our grants to actually assist them with that if they're unable to do it themselves so really is uh, we try to make it as easy as possible for people to uh, if they're interested in, in moving that direction we really encourage them to do so that it, it's easy for them to access that program Andrew, as always, a pleasure. Uh, thanks for taking some time. It's a very, very important project, and uh, and hopefully it's going to be the solution to uh, a, a something that was a major concern for an awful lot of people, not just in this community, but, of course, in the surrounding area as well. Good luck with this, and we'll talk again down the road. All right. Thank you for the time today, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. Andrew Grice, who is the director of Hamilton Water, uh, talking about uh, some remediation and, and hopefully fixing the damage that was done uh, by what a lot of folks are referring to as sewage gate. So uh, City Council is deeply involved in this, of course, and uh, a number of the councillors uh, have expressed some concern about this, uh, none more than the uh, the council for Ward 1, which is where this is located. Uh, she is Maureen Wilson, of course, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about that. Maureen, thank you for the time. Glad you could be here today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having um, me. Andrew is preaching. Uh, Andrew Grice is, is preaching patience here. Uh, I, I know a lot of people didn't have much patience when they found out the, the totality of the problem here. What's your reaction to the plan going forward? And you, are you comfortable with it? I am comfortable with Andrew's leadership, um, but but to be sure, in the plan, uh, this is a very sensitive area, uh, as your conversation revealed, and we have to be careful um, any time we are in and around that area. Um, and working with our partners is very, very important, given the knowledge that they're bringing to the table. Um, but there are there are two issues here. One is uh, that which was related to the very regrettable spill. But there's an ongoing issue that has been around for a long time. We know that 90% of the contaminants that are going into paradise are is comes from stormwater runoff, um, 
And that will continue after this dredging and this cleanup. And council, in my opinion, must turn its attention to that reality and in so doing must find a sustainable, predictable funding source to deal with it because otherwise we're going to continue uh, to to have um, overflows. We're going to continue to have uh, these very unpleasant and toxic algae blooms and we're, we're going to continue to fall behind. Um, and that's why I am a, a great proponent of bringing this broader, also watershed approach to it because it's not just about... Uh, it's about all of our urban waters. It's about Boar's Creek. It's about Ancaster Creek. It's about Spencer Creek. Uh, these are all the urban waterways that flow into Shadok. And right now, they are all adding uh, levels of phosphorus and other contaminants that are, are going to be a problem for us and are a problem for us. Well, how do you address something like that? And, and, and guys, I, that's why I asked Andrew Grace about that just before you joined us, uh, because it was—it's over 20 years ago that City Council, you know, passed a, a policy that said, "Look, disconnect, please." And it's not that hard. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, I've, I've done it to our properties, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's—it's it's not an onerous task at all, uh, and you just let the water flow. I mean, there's supposed to be swales and runoffs on all, all properties anyway. Uh, it's not supposed to go into the sewer system anymore. But I've still see an awful lot of people that haven't bothered to do it. Yes, and when I'm talking about stormwater runoff, um, to be sure, I, I don't mean to discount your point about the disconnections. I'm talking about us with the public making the connection uh, between what is going on in our city. So when we have very large parking lots and when we have a suburban sprawl, uh, any uh, ground that is not permeable uh, that water is running off those super sore parking lots, those industrial lots, and it's running uh, from those industries and from those businesses and from that sprawl when we have more and more parking lots. Uh, that That is the material that is running off and into our urban waterways, and that is the source of uh, elevated levels of, uh, of toxins. And And we do not have a stormwater management uh, funding program to deal with that. And we are one of the very few municipalities that does not. Um, and if we value Coots Paradise like we say we do, if we value our urban waters like we say we do, then that has to be reflected in our budgets. And we need to take uh, the leadership, not call it derisively a rain tax, it's a community benefit, and we have industries and businesses that um, we are subsidizing their business models because they are building large parking lots, and we have developers building sprawl, and they're not paying for that runoff, and it's compromising our water. It's going to be an expensive proposition, as you know, uh, and I know, I know, you know, some cities have actually been proactive on that. Well, I mean, just around the corner, we, we just talked about the big storm we hit here last night in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two stormwater retention ponds just around the corner from me here in Ancaster. That mm -hmm. you, you look at them as you're driving by golf links; they look like soccer fields, and they are. Uh, but when it rains like that, they're retention ponds. I mean, they're filled with water. That takes some of the pressure off, but you can't build one of those in every neighborhood. I mean, the, the cost would be prohibitive, wouldn't it? Uh, well, it takes up a lot of land, yeah. Um, and it means also uh, we have to start looking at our infrastructure differently so that we are uh, taking that water on site. Um, but this is, again, the link. We have to connect the dots for people, and I don't think we've been doing a great job of that. Um, climate change is bringing much more extreme weather conditions. So uh, our waterways and coots and our harbor are going to continue to be compromised. Uh, sprawl means more uh, impermeable pavement. We ha So what are we going to do? What can we do in our policy and in our funding regime to try and address this? Because Dr. McLaughlin from the Bay Area Restoration Council will show in, in really clear graphs that our, we, have, we have hit a wall when it comes to phosphorus. Our phosphorus levels are going up because all of those other matters like climate change and sprawl um, are we're not able to keep up with dealing with that stuff. And, and we've, we've got to come up with a, a, a long-term plan. As Andrew says, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, 
it's not going to be solved overnight, but this council has to, to make a decision on uh, what it values and who it values. Well, exactly. I know we're just about out of time here, but you know the, the, the plan that the ministry has okayed here, that fixes the problem. Uh, but if you don't fix the source of the problem, uh, it's, you're right, it's just going to repeat itself a couple of years from now. So uh, that's, that's going to be a council and a political decision. And we will look with great interest to see how your colleagues deal with that. Uh, Maureen, always a pleasure. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Bill. Take care. Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Association of Public Health Agencies, the latest to call for a provincial vaccine certificate system here in the province of Ontario. We, uh, we know that British Columbia, Manitoba and Quebec have already uh, begun that process. Other provinces are looking into it now. Uh, it seems to be, uh, in many people's minds, the way to go to try to, to curtail this fourth wave and to try to at least mitigate the damage. Global's Karen Lieberman has the details. We already have a platform. It's built. It's ready to go. So we're like, here it is, and it's free. You know, why not use it? Vector Health Labs created the CanaTrace app in November for businesses to tackle contact tracing and symptom screening. It's now been expanded to include proof of vaccination, similar to what's being rolled out in Quebec. I think overall the fourth wave has created a scenario where we are looking down the barrel of a very dire situation in Ontario. We realize that there is resistance to the vaccine passport program, but the upside is huge. In the absence of provincial direction, we can get together with health units and we've looked at that possibility, not our first choice, but we've looked at that as, okay, what can we do at a local level to be able to issue directives or instructions? Well, let's talk about that uh, because it's a key part of, uh, of what's going on here. And, you know, earlier in the week, of course, we had Dr. Peter Uni on the program from the uh, the health table uh, suggesting that, you know, it might be inevitable that there could be another lockdown if these numbers continue to rise. Yeah, nobody wants to go down that road, do they? I want to bring uh, Ryan Imgord into the conversation, biostatistician who's been following and tracking what's happening with this pandemic. Uh, Ryan, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us again today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, we, we're late to the party here. It's radio silence from Queen's Park now, but uh, uh, this is one of many organizations right now uh, that have joined in here, the Chamber of Commerce, the Ontario Chamber, the National Chamber, uh, a number of nurses associations, doctors associations are saying, look, at, let's get with the program here. Talk to us about your read on, on, on what proof of vaccination would do here to, to try to mitigate the spread. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing we need to keep in mind is what vaccination does is it drastically reduces your chances of needing an ICU bed if you get COVID. So, yes, breakthrough infections do happen. But what we find is that those that are vaccinated are 58 times right now less likely to use an ICU bed um, when you know if they actually get coped so i think that's that's a really big thing to keep in mind and we know that this is all about healthcare capacity so what would happen that if we ask people if they were vaccinated before they go into higher risk activities we could ensure that those higher risk activities that may lead to transmission would only lead to transmission amongst the vaccinated which would once again lead to a much reduced chance of needing an icu bed overwhelming the healthcare system, and then going back into another lockdown. We've heard the term, and it's become part of our our vernacular, I guess, because of what's happening with the pandemic, super spreaders. Uh, And there have been a number of them, lots of them in the States. But any time when there's a a large group of people together in close proximity and and they're not taking all the precautions. And then we find that usually 10 to 14 days later, there are a number of cases from people that attended that. Uh, And that's that's dramatic. I get that. Those are big numbers. Uh, But you can have mini spreaders too, can't you? I mean, going into a small enclosed environment and do this, and there's even one person that's exposed to it. And we've already seen that uh, with oh, there's a restaurant in Hamilton that's dealing with it right now. Then there was the spin class so, uh, last year, what happens in the small environments like that. And it, it can be toxic and it spreads very quickly. And now, as you've told us in the past, this Delta variant is even more contagious than that, that variant was. For sure. We actually saw um, one of the Hamilton hospitals had the exact same situation where countless people on the exact same floor got sick. Um, and, you know, the excuse kind of at the time was, well, someone brought it from one person to the next. Well, that wasn't the case. We know COVID-19 is airborne. It is easily able to spread from one person to the next, especially if we have a super spreader that is in that room. And I think one of the issues is that's a really good thing to kind of keep in mind is that not like everyone spreads COVID-19 the exact same way. But if there's someone who is a super spreader and we have an event that would lead to super spreading, such as singing or aerosol generating uh, medical procedures, that's what is going to lead to a huge, huge uptick in cases. 
And I know what what some places are saying, and this basically, I guess, what the premier and his staff are saying is, well, yeah, but you know, the, we can do testing. Testing doesn't prevent the spread. It just tells you that that particular day you may not have it. Doesn't mean you're not going to get it tomorrow because you're not protected. Right. It does a semi-decent job of sometimes picking up asymptomatic infection. Um, not all the time. It, it's not the way out of it to simply have people tested, and that would be my worry. That any time we have seen some, you know certain uh, like countries um, move into a vaccine passport system, it's sometimes been like paired with a like test from the previous 72 hours. And that's even more troubling. If I have a test today, um, really, that gives me my status. As you were saying, now, um, it's certainly not going to give my status three days from now. There's so many excuses for people not doing this, and and again, I every time we have these conversations, we'll exclude the anti-vaxxers, you know, the radicals that just, you know, I've heard from them, and I just it's it's white noise as far as I'm concerned, but it's this other group that seem to have all these these you know reasons for not doing it, and and it, you know, it used to be well, I can't even got time or I can't find a clinic, and that's not a, a reason anymore because of the the supply that we've got, but there's some other crazy things that are going on out there. Uh, one of them, and I'm sure you've heard it, Ryan, is that uh, well, you know. Uh, young women who are you know planning a family at some point and they say well we've heard uh from a few people that it can affect uh you know the ovaries and that could affect pregnancies and uh, it, there is absolutely no proof of that and uh, it, all it really takes i guess is is to do a little research and find out what vaccines are and how they work yeah and and then one thing as well which we're hearing a lot of is that even medical professionals are finding a really really tough time to even find valid uh exemptions for people who want to find a way out of vaccination. There's not really many medically valid things out there that would allow for someone to actually be exempt from receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. I think that's important to keep in mind, too. And I think that's what we find when we you know, start to search on our own, when we go to some of these closed Facebook groups, we find ways to wiggle out of receiving a vaccine. And that's just another one of those false stories that has no data that supports it at all. Well, and, and that's one of the other falsehoods that, that maybe we should address here, too. Some people say, well, I'm worried about the long-term effects of the, the vaccine. Uh, and, and, and no, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I mean, I've talked to experts like you and, and people that are epidemiologists. And uh, what I extrapolate from what they're telling me is there basically are really no long-term effects of it because the vaccine leaves your body in about two weeks. It does not stay in your body and circulate all through your body, go through your brain, your heart, your you know uh, reproductive organs. Uh, the vaccines, from what I'm reading here, right, tend to they stay right there in the muscle where they've been injected, uh, and that's where the antibodies are developed through the lymph system, which is right beside it. Uh, and when the, when those antibodies are developed, apparently the vaccine goes through the lymph system, which is basically our waste disposal system, and we get rid of it. It's gone. So right. so what's this what's this argument about long term effects? There are none. Oh, the only long term effect is it's, it's allowed your body to create antibodies that are going to be used in case that's ever presented it to your body again. But that's your own body doing it. That's nothing foreign. 100%. The only long-term thing that you get from this vaccine is antibodies, and it's the same thing you would get if you actually got COVID-19. That's you know, really the only long-term effect of vaccinations, but that's why we vaccinate people. We want that long-term effect. Those, um, you know, the other like claims, they simply don't add up. Um, and there's it, it seems that we're at a point right now, and I think you um, hit this on the head earlier on, that we're in a situation now where if you want a vaccine, you can get a vaccine. Um, that's not an excuse anymore. But now, even when the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine, fully approved the vaccine down in the States, there were still people that want to wait even longer. There was um, in an interview that I was overhearing with someone who who we previously said, I'll wait for the FDA to approve of this vaccine. She was asked again, well, look, the FDA approved of this vaccine. She wanted more longer term studies. And she said around 10 years. Well, I mean, by that time, it's just way too late. Vaccines won't do anything 10 years from now. 
Well, what the, which is another point, by the way, when they say, you know, well, all the studies haven't been done. We want to know what's going to happen long term. The, the, the physicians, the experts from from the and God knows we've talked to enough of them over the last 19 months. The only the major concern they've got about long term is how effective and how long the vaccine is going to be effective, because as, as you've told us, it varies from vaccine to vaccine. You know, we, we get booster shots for mumps, rubella and all this sort of stuff about every 10 years. We're supposed to get them. So they've done that. But we're not going to know that until later, 10 years down the road. This is why they've already started talking about boosters. It doesn't mean there's some adverse thing going on in your body. It just means that vaccines, like every other thing we put in in medications, it it wears off. We just don't know how soon that's going to happen yet. Exactly. And from what we're seeing is that even though it may wear off, I mean, we may, not too sure, we may be seeing this in Israel right now where we're seeing case counts go really, really high. Now, they were vaccinated early, but we are not seeing that big rise in hospitalization. And that really is what the COVID-19 vaccine is all about. It's about defanging this virus so that if you're vaccinated and you get COVID-19, um, it basically, it, it like drastically lowers your risk profile. I think we spoke about this earlier on too, that really what a vaccination does is it reduces your chance of being hospitalized. If you were 80 and you're vaccinated, if you get COVID-19, but you were vaccinated, you respond like a 30 to 39 year old. And we know, yes, there's the odd 30 to 39 year old who may end up hospitalized, but generally that's not the case. And what vaccinations do is reduce your risk profile. We're getting into the science of this, and, and which I think is what we should have always been doing anyway, instead of you know listening to some TV commentator who thinks they know more about this than than, uh, than some of the experts. But when, when you start looking at that and the efficacy of the vaccines and, and just why we're doing this, I mean, you know, if, if it's only one year and we have to get a booster, I mean, I get a flu shot every year because we know that that vaccine wears off and it doesn't work from one year to the next. Big deal. I roll up my sleeve again, I get another vaccination. But And you've made this point for I don't know how many months now, and I'm hoping it's starting to resonate with people. The only way to protect yourself against these variants is to develop antibodies. And you can do it one of two ways. Uh, you can get COVID, and God knows what's going to happen to you if that happens. You could end up in the hospital on a ventilator. You could end up with long-term cardiac problems. There's a number of different things. Or you can get the vaccine and let the body produce the antibodies, and that gives you that shield. It's not impregnable, but it gives you a shield. If you're walking around without any protection at all and no antibodies, you're putting yourself in harm's way. Exactly. And what studies have have shown is that if you actually get vaccinated against COVID-19, you seem to have a better antibody response than if you just simply get COVID-19 on its own. So if you want to fully like, protect yourself and you want those antibodies and you want it at the right amount, being vaccinated is certainly the way that you need to go. What, what bothers what bothers me, and I just mentioned as you were joining us here with uh, my interview with Dr. Uni earlier this week, and and others that have said, you know, we you know, we don't want another lockdown, but the numbers are right; they're dramatic, and as they're, they're as as bad as as the numbers we had. Actually, in some cases, uh, some of the new cases and some of the hospitalizations are worse than they were seven months ago when we did have a lockdown. Uh, and so that's an option that the province may be entertaining. And I guess the biggest regret, if we go down that road, Ryan, is a lot of people, and myself included, are going to think it didn't have to be this bad. Are we using all the tools? And we're not right now. No, we certainly aren't. I mean, it's interesting because I think if we look now at how many cases are in the unvaccinated, and we're seeing close to 500 cases per day on average in the unvaccinated. Now, if we look back to last August, where once again, everyone was unvaccinated, we were not seeing 500 cases per day. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind, that even though some people like to argue, well, now we're seeing more cases, but we're seeing them in the vaccinated as well. Right. I'm not worried about COVID-19 cases within the vaccinated population. They're not going to cause that strain on the healthcare system. What is going to cause that strain is those 500 daily cases in the unvaccinated population and that number is only going up. And as that number goes up, we're going to have more ICU utilization and we're going to be forced into another lockdown. No one wants a lockdown, but if you're in a situation where you literally do not have healthcare uh, capacity, all that you can do is lock down. It's not an option. If you don't have healthcare capacity, you have to lock down. 
there's an inevitability to this. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. For instance, if you want to travel, and you can't do it right now, but I mean, if you want to get on a plane and go to London, uh, you have to have a vaccine passport, or, or a number of other countries, you have to have a vaccine passport. Some provinces have actually put that in play right now, too. If you want to leave Ontario and go to another province, you have to have a vaccine passport. Uh, and uh, I know that Justin Trudeau just made an announcement about 15 minutes ago, pledging, I think it was a billion dollars, uh, to set up the fund for vaccine passports implementation. Now, I don't know if that's going to follow up and say if i'm elected this is what we're going to do but it's happening it's 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 like the smoking bylaw that went here about 20 years ago uh we can do this piecemeal one municipality at a time and one's going to look different than another or governments can step up and do what they're supposed to do and take charge of public health and say this is the these are the rules this is the way it's going to be for everybody uh and it makes it a lot easier for everybody to understand yeah 100 i think even here in ontario um it seems that you know we maybe lean towards that kind of a like patchwork system, like we were with masking bylaws too. If we think yeah. back to last summer, we had every single public health unit separately implement a masking system in certain scenarios for certain age groups, certain you know exemptions, certain places, and all of a sudden the, the province set their own bylaw in November. We're talking months and months after all the all the municipalities already did it, and we had that kind of a patchwork system. And that would be my worry with a like provincial patchwork system where we have each and every public health unit doing their own thing, restricting different uh, activities. My other worry with that as well is that if we look at some of our like border towns, we look at um, Thunder Bay, we look at like Ottawa, for instance, if they're surrounded by another province where there is a vaccine passport system for high-risk activities, where will those people who are unable to do high-risk activities in some of those border towns go? They're going to go to Ottawa. They're going to go to Thunder Bay. They're going to go to these places because they're unable to do high-risk activities in their own area. And we saw that. I mean, I, I was on a local council, at Hamilton Council, back when the smoking bylaw was being debated. And Hamilton proactively passed one. It was pretty watered down, but it was there. Uh, our next-door neighbor, Burlington, passed one. It was not nearly as as, as restrictive. And the, everybody was going over to Burlington to have dinner. And I haven't gone to that restaurant because until the province stepped in and said, whoa, one size fits all. This is the way it's going to be for every municipality. And, and they're doing it. You're right. He did it for the mask mandate. He certainly did it for the lockdown. He didn't say, okay, Peel, you're locked down. Uh, you know, Toronto, you're not. It was one size fits all. That's just what they do. And it, it, I think it gives people some ideas to exactly what the policies are as opposed to, you know, okay, what community are we in? What are the rules here? Because it's, it's confusing. And the last thing we need here to try to battle this thing is confusion. Yeah. And I think if we think back to last summer, too, going back to the whole uh, masking issue, there wasn't a lot of palatability at the time. If we think back to some of the first few city council votes um, on masking bylaws, some of them were 9-8, you know, 7-6. Mm -hmm. They're very, very close to actually passing them. Once we got into, you know, like public health unit 30, public health unit 31, they were unanimous all the time. And that may be the one beneficial thing about starting with a patchwork system is that eventually it may trickle up to a like province-wide, then hopefully a the Canada-wide system where we can all get on board with something that works, that once again limits people that are unvaccinated from high-risk activities so that we can protect our health care system. Well, the polling we've seen on this is 85% of Canadians right across the land are in favour of some sort of vaccination proof or vaccination passport. Uh, and it's about time that our elected officials started listening to, to exactly what we want to see happen here. Ryan, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Same you. Take it easy. Bye. Take care. Ryan Ingram, biostatistician who's been following and tracking uh, the, the pandemic and the way that it is spreading. And it is spreading. And uh, it's troubling to an awful lot of the experts. And this is where the politicians have to step up. That's where the policy comes from, from the politicians. And we're looking for some action here in Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.